electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Bill Ackman has covered that bet against bonds, but our market guest is not buying into that move. He tells us why and what he is buying right now. And Jamie Dimon says central banks have been 100% dead wrong on forecasts, and it doesn't matter if the Fed hikes again. Is he right? We'll ask former Fed Vice Chair Randy Quarles. And a big payment player and two big tech names on deck with earnings. And our guest says one of them has a lot of problems, but they're good ones. He'll explain coming up in earnings exchange. Let's start with today's markets, though. As you heard Scott say, we're kind of heading towards session lows here. Dom Chu has the numbers, Dom. Just about session lows. And what we mean by this is it's been a generally positive day, Kelly, to your point. But at the highs of the session, just to give you an idea of the context today, the S&P 500, which is currently up seven points right now, was up roughly 42 points at the high and up roughly two points at the lows of the session. So, again, tilting towards that lower side of things, 42.24 is the last trade there. Keep an eye on 42.36. We've mentioned this so-called 200-day moving average or longer-term trend line for the markets on a rolling basis. We're sitting slightly below there right now. That's something traders are watching. The Dow Industrial is up about one quarter of 1%, 92 points, 33,029. The Nasdaq Composite up 21 points, roughly two-tenths of 1%, 13,040 the last trade there. So again, losing some steam in this midday part of the session. Now, one part that's been gaining steam throughout the course of the last few weeks has been Bitcoin. Now, if you take a look at this chart over the last year or so, we have now topped 33,000. At one point today, depending on which metric or which exchange you look at on Bitcoin, we were north of 35,000 for each Bitcoin. It's up about 8.5%. This is the highest level in quite some time going back to better parts of the earlier part of this year. So Bitcoin... Keep an eye on those. It's been a breakout. Remember, we had some trading ranges that were slightly below there for the better part of the last six months. And now we've kind of broken above to that level here. So we'll watch Bitcoin prices. And then on the earnings side of things, generally speaking, most of the companies that have reported so far today, and there have been a lot of them, have been positive on both the top and the bottom lines. Companies like 3M, though, up 5.5%. General Electric, up 6%. Sherwin-Williams, which is now down on the day, and Logitech, all not only beat, but then raised their forecast as well. And then RTX, the company formerly known as Raytheon, United Technologies, they merged, big defense aerospace contractor, up 7%. They beat on results and then added $10 billion to their stock buyback. So a lot of earnings headlines. And believe it or not, this is tame. Kelly, because we got a lot more results coming out later out this week. I'll send things back over. Yeah, to look you. at Logitech up 12%, RTX down banks. 5% bond yields may be spooking markets, but my next guest says we shouldn't be so alarmed. They're just reverting back to the historical mean, along with inflation, taxes, and nominal GDP. Joining me now is Jason Trenner, chairman and CEO of Strategus Research Partners, a Baird company. Also with us is Brian Weinstein, head of global markets at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. It's great to have you both here this afternoon. Jason, I'll start with you. Um, you know, you think this is normal. This is normal. Everything's fine. Stop panicking, everybody. Yeah, I think that's my, my view. I think what was not normal was the Fed 
uh, fixing interest rates, the most important price in the world, for 12 years. And I think well, the problem now, I think generationally, and maybe I could say this because I'm maybe a bit older, but um, I, I think people have forgotten that there's, you know, normally people who lend other people money require some premium over the right, rate of inflation to, to do so. And we, got, we all got very accustomed to the fact that real rates were, were zero or negative in some cases. And so I think to the extent to which the Fed is unlikely to use quantitative easing again soon, I, I hope, um, that would mean that there'll be a, a typical spread of about 200 basis points between the rate of inflation um, and the 10-year Treasury. I, I also think that there are structural reasons why inflation is likely to stay higher uh, than the 0 to 2 percent range we became accustomed to as well. Let me ask both of you, just to be clear, so do you think that 5 percent yields, you can pick the 10, the 30, you know, whatever, but I mean, on the long end, Jason, is that basically the top, or do you think they could get head higher from here? What worries me, Kelly, is that there is just a, a certain amount of fiscal incontinence in Washington, D.C. We're running uh, deficits that are 5 percent of GDP at full employment. Um, so the amount of issuance that we're going to see uh, just on interest expense alone is going to explode. So normally this would be enough. I, I would say this is, you know, this would be in the range of, of kind of the upper end of the range. The, the issue is that there's, there's absolutely no discipline on spending or deficits, which means that the supply of treasuries could explode. So all that said, Brian, uh, let me ask you kind of a simple question first, if you think 5% is the top of the range. Kelly, there's no, I agree with a lot of what Jason said. There's no reason to believe that 5% is magical. And to add to what he said in the, in the long end, when I started, if we're telling more stories, um, there, there, we had a balanced budget, right? There are going to be no more, <laughs> yeah. treas there are gonna be no more treasuries. Right. Ten, 10's bonds curve was inverted. Now we have infinite deficits, and 10's bonds curves is almost flat. The long end of the yield curve is not cheap. The rest of it is cheaper. It may not be the top, but the long bond has some work to do, I think, still to find the top of a range. Okay, so maybe think, you both kind of think things could even go a little bit higher from here. So good. I want to play devil's advocate because I'm in that kind of mood. I'm in, a, I'm in a bearish mood. So let me ask you both about this. And Jason, I'll start with you. Um, let's say the economy is in recession next year. Are we so sure? I'm a little more, you know, as much as everything that happened the past decade is coming home to roost, I'm sympathetic with the Fed doing what it did because growth and inflation were so weak. Why wouldn't we end up back in that situation again? If we have a nasty recession and because of what you're talking about, the government can't come to the rescue then how bad could it get? Could we be back in a deflationary trap all over again? I, I think it's doubtful you, you'd be back in a de deflationary trap all over again. And again, a lot of it has to do with, with spend, government spending. Uh, it also has to do with the fact that I, I think one of the major tailwinds for lower inflation or disinflation was globalization. I think that's over. Sadly, yeah. Um, but uh, and I also uh, I also think that our environmental policies are baking in the cake higher energy prices of fossil higher prices of fossil fuels. So listen, if we have a recession next year, it wouldn't surprise me if the ten-year Treasury yield, yield fell. I'm just saying that the the what you would expect. Uh, I I don't think you can draw a lot of conclusions based on what you saw during 2009 to 2021 about sure. the level that the rates might fall to, right? you know, the lower bound might be four mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to two and a half or three. So it just given 
the nature of um, of these structural issues that we're discussing. No, I think this is fascinating. Brian, I want your take on this as well, because if the lower bound is four, that's a huge problem. It's going to leave <laughs> us in the fiscal doom loop. It's going to be it's going to mean that deficits keep widening and the debt keeps growing. And like we're it means we're stuck. You either need the, the long end rates to come back to something like, you know, two or three or wherever is going to get real rates, you know, significantly lower to fix that problem. And yeah, so that's why I am curious what you think would happen in a recession, uh, even a low inflation dynamic with bond yields because of the fiscal part of the equation. Yeah, I guess the bad news is eventually we're, we're going to find out because I think uh, Jason laid out the case very well, right? We're, we're, we don't seem to have fiscal discipline. I don't think we're going back to zero inflation. Um, and so I don't know if four is the bound. It could be three. I'm not sure it matters that much, but it's not zero. I don't think that's where we're going. Um, and so, yes, if we need to borrow 10-year notes at two and a half percent to survive, um, we are going to have to adjust spending. Uh, have to adjust taxes, have to do something to uh, to change the, the story. And I think for this year, the story's been own cash and own risk. And I think it's changing, right? You're supposed to own some tips. You're supposed to own some five and seven-year interest rates. And you're, you're supposed to own less risk, less credit, because I do think we're getting closer to that tipping point where growth is impacted by higher rates. We, I want to get to this auction just, Jason, quickly on a, on a very pragmatic note. I mean, would you be buying short, the short end? Uh, here, at least thinking, OK, the Fed's done hiking or, or what do you have confidence then in uh, in terms of, you know, investments right now? Well, I think I think tips make a lot of sense. Uh, I think that if you're going to be in the fixed income markets, I do think you'd want to be in the shorter duration part um, uh, of the curve. Uh, and if you're buying stocks, I, I think you really have to focus on balance sheets. You have to focus on companies that have an ability to grow without uh, relying on the kindness of strangers, without, without accessing uh, capital that's near free uh, indefinitely. And we, we became very accustomed to that, uh, again, during the QE period. But um, I think those days are over. Um, I, so um, Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I note here as well that you say, look, long, short hedge fund strategies could outperform. Be careful, though, of levered long private equity investments. That's been a recurring theme here. Let me just bring in Dom Chu for a moment. We are in the middle of a bond auction right now. We had one top of the hour. It was two years. Let's see if this was going a little bit better than the long end lately. Uh, what can you tell us, Dom? So it's a bit of a mixed picture, Kelly. What we have right now is a $51 billion worth of two-year notes up for sale. The note went off for sale at 5.05%. That was the yield. The yields currently in the market and what they were just ahead of that auction, roughly about 5.09%. The reason why I'd say it's mixed, the, the yield went off slightly lower than the kind of what the market was before the auction went off. But compared to the averages, the bid to cover, which is the amount of demand there is, generally speaking, there was $2.64 worth of bids for every bond up for sale. That seems okay over the last 10 auctions of a similar size in two years. That bid to cover, so to speak, was closer to 2.76. So on average, slightly more demand for that particular bid, bid to cover ratio. The number of indirect bidders was slightly lower than the 10 auction average. It was about 62.05%. That compares to 64%, so not that far off on the 10 auction average. Now that indirect bidder is something that a lot of traders pay attention to because it's often seen as a proxy for foreign central bank demand. So that's one thing. And then direct bidders, you think of like hedge funds, mutual funds, that sort of thing took about the same amount, 20% of the auction that they normally do. Dealers took down slightly more, about 17.5% of this auction. So overall, the, the rate was slightly better than what it was going into the auction. Demand 
on certain levels, maybe a little bit incrementally worse. So a kind of mixed picture on the two-year side, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thanks. Brian, your reaction? It's a two-year auction. Um, there'll be more. Uh, I think the stats yeah. look pretty average. Nice thing about the deficit, um, if you don't like this auction, wait for the next one. I don't read too much into these individually. Listen, we, we know there's less foreign demand. We know you need higher yields to clear this thing. We haven't seen reallocations from equities into bonds. It takes a long time to happen. There's a lot more coming, so I don't read a whole lot into it. But um, if you want bonds, they're out there, um, and the yields are actually getting better every day. They certainly are. Jason, I'll give you the last word here. What would your advice be to investors in this climate? Again, I think it's just just focus on the fact that the era of quantitative easing is over, that we're in an era of quantitative tightening, and some of the old-fashioned rules of investing are going to start to apply, that the, the laws of financial physics will start to reassert themselves, uh, that the, the period between 2009 and 2021 was uh, very unusual. Yes, to say the least. And like you said, a lot of people came of age during it thinking, yeah, yeah, it's always That's like this right. Uber and, That's you know, whatever. Right. Just, you don't need to make money. Uh, Jason <laughs> Trenner, Brian Weinstein, thank you both for your time today. Really appreciate it. Let's take a look now at shares of the big three automakers. Since the UAW strike began more than five weeks ago, GM has taken the biggest hit. It's down 14 percent. Now the union is expanding its strike to the company's largest plant. Our Phil LeBeau has the latest on that and what we learned from GM's decent results this morning, Phil. Kelly, it is the largest and most profitable plant for General Motors that the UAW has now struck. It is the plant in Arlington where they make large SUVs. Everything from the Tahoe to the Escalade come out of that plant. It's about 20% of their production in the U.S., 5,000 UAW workers approximately on strike at that facility down in Arlington, Texas. And as you take a look at shares of General Motors since the strike began, keep in mind that 42% of its production in the United States has now been stopped because of UAW strikes. And by the way, they've got a couple other plants where they've either stopped production or have had to curtail it because of the ripple effects of the strike as well. This has cost General Motors $800 million since September 15th. And earlier today, the company said they would be holding guidance or withdrawing guidance for the rest of this year because the unknown costs that are out there. Here is CEO Mary Barra during the analyst call today and listen to the frustration in her voice. The current offer is the most significant that GM has ever proposed to the UAW. They've demanded a record contract, and that's exactly what we've offered for weeks now. A historic contract with record wages that have increases that are substantial, record job security, and world-class health care. It's an offer that rewards our team members but does not put the company and their jobs at risk. Accepting unsustainably high costs that would put our future and the GM team members' job at risk is simply something that I will not do. Uh, Mary Barrow is fairly feisty during that analyst call when asked about the UAW strike, and it's understandable. I, I have a sense that they probably knew something was coming because the announced strike in Arlington came right after that call. Take a look at the number of UAW strike locations around the United States. This is for all of the automakers. Now includes eight final assembly plants. 45,000 UAW members are striking at these locations around the U.S. As you take a look at GM, Ford, and Stellantis over the last three months, thing to keep in mind is that the UAW has now hit the most profitable plants for each of the big three. And Kelly, back to you. Phil, does that suggest that whatever we heard on earnings today is, uh, you know, is history because they're facing a bigger profitability hit in the current quarter? 
You mean, will they never be able to, to, to reach the level of profitability no, that they the, have right now? The, the, I think you could say overall the earnings came in a little bit better than expected, perhaps. They but, were. you know, how yeah. relevant is that to the situation that's changing here by the day? It's relevant to the UAW situation in that the UAW is using that to say, you've got the money. You made $3.5 billion last quarter. We deserve more. That That's the relevancy here. Yeah. For the investor, I, I, I hate to say this, Kelly, none of the investors are paying attention to the fact that GM is knocking it out of the park in the third quarter before the strike began. And that's not a reflection on GM. That's just the way the market is right now. I think the investors are saying, you tell me what the cost profile is going to be when this strike is over. Then I'll have a better sense about where I want to take this stock, where I want to buy it, where I want to hold it, sell it, et cetera. They don't know that at this point. They have a general idea, but they don't know because we don't know the final details of the UAW contract. All right, Phil, we got to go, but there is one headline that catches my attention since you're sitting right there. Apparently, the DMV has suspended cruises deployment and driverless testing. Uh, maybe we just need to wait for more in details California? on this report. But, you know, you, is that Kelly, you know, is that in California? It, I believe so. It's fresh on the wire. So there's really not a lot of detail at this point. But, um, right. you, you know, there's just wanted to mention. Well, given the incident that uh, was under investigation, you, I could somewhat under I do understand where, where the DMV is at. Uh, let's see where this investigation leads. Yeah, exactly. Phil, we appreciate it very much today, our Phil Lebeau in you Washington, D.C., no less. Coming up, the House is still without a speaker, but now there is a nominee. The question is, how much support will he get? We're just about three weeks away from the next potential government shutdown. We'll get the latest from Capitol Hill next. Plus, former Fed Vice Chair for Supervision Randy Quarles will join me with his first reaction to the 10-year topping 5%. And whether he thinks the Fed's inflation fight is near an end. We'll also ask him about the health of the banking system. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets with the Dow hanging on to an 88-point gain. Quarter percent increases across the board, a little more than that, actually, for the Russell 2000s. 10-year note, 483. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1 Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The search for a new House speaker entering its third week, the longest stretch since 1962. But House Republicans just a short while ago putting forth a new nominee. Emily Wilkins is on Capitol Hill with the latest. Emily? 
Hey, Kelly. Well, Tom Emmer, who went in this morning as the favorite, has now emerged as the Republicans' next nominee for speaker. And of course, hopes are high that he can do better than Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise at getting to that 217. But it is just not clear that he can. After Emmer was elected as the nominee, they went around the room and they basically said, roll call, who's going to vote for Emmer on the floor? And we are told by members that there were 26 Republicans who said that they would not vote for Emmer. Either they'd vote for another member or they'd vote present. And that, of course, is a huge concern. Emmer can only afford to lose four Republicans. And now, right now, we're told that he's doing kind of a town hall style with them behind closed doors, hearing members out on their concerns, talking them through, trying to get them on board. There is a lot of fatigue in the conference right now. They've been going at this for so long without a speaker. It's not clear what the path forward is. But there is also optimism. I talked with Congressman Dan Muser just a little bit ago, who said that he is hopeful that Republicans can unify and find a path forward. I think we can overcome some of the differences that people have. I certainly believe so. I hope so. We're going to work at it. It remains to be seen at this point what Republicans' next move is. Uh, they could wind up having a floor vote a little bit later today. We could not see anything until tomorrow. All that we do know at this point is that the clock is ticking. We know, that, of course, that there's that November 17th deadline for when the current stopgap funding does run out and we're facing another government shutdown. And then, of course, the funding request that the White House has for Israel that a lot of members have said it is very important for them to move. So, Kelly, it's not clear what happens next, but we will be following following every move on Capitol Hill. And just remind me when the when this kind of uh, vote by the whole house uh, might happen. That is such a great question. Right now, it's really up to Tom Emmer. It is up to the nominee to decide. And this is something that members have actually had to be quite strategic about. How long do you spend talking with folks behind closed doors? How long do you go before putting them on the record? How many times do you put them on the record? That's all kind of a part of a strategy that we saw with Scalise and Jordan. And it will be interesting to see how Emmer plays that out. Certainly, they want to get to the floor as soon as possible. Uh, but you don't want to get to the floor and then have 25 folks vote against you, as we saw with Jim Jordan. Exactly. And all the Meanwhile, time is of the essence. Emily, thank you so much, our Emily Wilkins reporting. As the fight for 217 votes continues, my next guest says all the internal scuffling among House Republicans could pose a governance problem for the chamber going forward. Joining me now is CNBC contributor James Pethokoukis, an economic policy analyst at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also the author of a new book called The Conservative Futurist. Uh, James, welcome. It, we make it sound like you're, you're hey. bringing some hot fire insight here, but you know, we asked you and you <laughs> stated the obvious, and the obvious is uh, this is a problem. But, but what's really at stake here um, you know, as this drags on and potentially does threaten, I don't know, maybe a, a shutdown or, or the Israel funding at the very least? Yeah, uh, well, you, you, you know, pick them. Uh, shutdown, Israel-Ukraine funding, uh, permit, permitting bill, uh, just about anything. All that stuff is an absolute limbo here. Uh, listen, I mean, I get it. You know, you know, for these members of Congress, you know, chaos is a ladder, and Tom Emmer just climbed it. Uh, we'll see if it leads anywhere. I mean, 26, did he get 26 no votes? I mean, that is, that is worse than Jordan. That is a huge hill to climb. And uh, we, you know... You know, I heard Matt Gates maybe voted for him. The Trump people don't like him. 
Uh, I don't think we're at the end of the story here. Well, it, we're not at the end in the sense that it's unlikely going to be settled, it seems, at least in the next 24 hours that he's got this and, and moves on. So we're, we're stuck in this kind of holding pattern, the same pattern we were in last week. Um, also yes. interesting that McHenry has made it clear he doesn't really want to be empowered as speaker. He sounded a little resistant to, to going that route. You know, I'll be honest. You know, I am very skeptical when politicians say they don't want the bigger job, right, that sure. they don't want the job with more power. I mean, listen, being, listen, I, I, I certainly think there's a realistic scenario that this, this stops being about votes and ends up being about uh, lawsuits, whether it's actually legal to give the speaker pro tem expanded power and he may be that speaker pro tem. I mean, I kind of think that might be where we're going. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, he would take he would take that job. But he, I think he would certainly take the speaker's job again. Big, giant mountain of salt when politicians say, I, I don't want the big job. I'm, I'm OK where I'm at. Let me ask you my favorite sort of pivot question in this whole thing, which is not so much to pile on the Republicans, although maybe you can tell me it's warranted. But to say, is this simply reflective of where the bases, you know, where voters are. If they're, if they themselves are split on some of these thorny issues, we've barely elected a, a Congress that has clear leadership, and this is now just the latest manifestation of that. Is that because people of this country are split on some of these big thorny questions as well, or should we blame the GOP for infighting? Well, clearly there's a very high level of infighting and dissonance inside the Republican Party. You have the Republican base, doesn't think too much of, it, of its actual leaders. Uh, I mean, in a normal scenario, somebody like Tom Emmer, that, that's kind of like the kind of person you think might be, a, might be speaker. But you know what, he voted, you know, he, he voted to you know, certify the election. Um, he's, you know, he's a, you know, Ukraine aid. There are a lot of, there are a lot of, uh, Republicans who are very much against both those things. So there are all these different fissures. They talk about the five families of the Republican party. You know, you have the, the Trump people, the business people, you know, all these different people. It is a very, uh, you know, it's a, it's a crazy mix right now. And what you're getting is very little governance and you're getting stasis. You said about it, we are stuck in a holding pattern. It's paralysis. Sometimes the, the line is that, you know, gridlock is good, um, that markets like it and stocks can do well and this and that. I see you shaking your head and that was kind of just wanted to end with with what you think the practical yeah. takeaway is for investors. Like this isn't 1999 economy booming, you know, <laughs> peace everywhere. We have problems. We have a lot of foreign policy problems. We have an economy that could be doing a lot better. What are we going to do about immigration? What are we going to do about science funding? Uh, we have these regulations which make it impossible to build anything in this country, which the Biden administration is finding out. We have things that need to get done. So I really am against the notion that right now gridlock is good. Again, you know, maybe 25 years ago, not today. Right. Jimmy, Jim, James, she said, I got it. Thank you for your time today. I really <laughs> you appreciate bet. you fielding all the questions. James yeah. Pethokoukas joining me from AEI. Coming up, NVIDIA getting a boost as it and AMD are reportedly working on ARM-based PC chips. That sent Intel shares toward their worst day in a month. And now NVIDIA is announcing a new AI partnership that could pit the chip maker against cloud providers. We'll get you those details next. As we head to break, here's a look at the sectors today with utilities leading the way. We'll have more on that in a moment, while energy, healthcare, and tech are the groups that are languishing in the red right now as the markets cling on to some positive territory here. We're back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, 
AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. About a third of a percent gain for the Dow and S&P at the moment. 42.33 for the S&P 500. Nasdaq's up half a percent. And utilities are among the best performing sectors today. Lower rates certainly helping there. The ETF that tracks the group, the XLU, is about to snap a five-day losing streak. It's up about two and a half percent. Best day since April. All 30 of its components are in the green today. And nearly half are up at least 10% from their recent lows. It is still the worst performing sector ETF this year, down about 17% since Jan 1. But I do remember Michael Darda a couple weeks ago on this show saying he thought utilities were a buy. Elsewhere, Verizon is the top name in the S&P and having its best day since 2008 after raising free cash flow guidance by a billion dollars to more than 18 billion. The company also added more subscribers than expected in the third quarter. Earnings beat, revenues were in line with estimates. Remember just a few weeks back, the stock hit its lowest level in more than 13 years. And now that's giving you the entire year's dividend yield uh, in one day, up nearly 9%. Let's get to Pippa Stevens now for a CNBC News update. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. United Nations relief workers said this afternoon they may be forced to stop operations in Gaza tomorrow. The UN's Relief and Workers Agency says it is in urgent need of fuel. Access to fuel in Gaza has been cut off for weeks now. Meanwhile, officials in Gaza say their health care system is failing and three hospitals in the area have run out of fuel to power their generators. Google Maps and Waze, which is owned by Google, are pausing live traffic updates and the feature that tells people how busy certain locations are in Israel. No word if this will extend to Gaza as well. We saw a similar suspension of these tools in Ukraine following the Russian invasion. Google says the suspension is out of consideration for the safety of local communities. And LeBron James and Peyton Manning are looking to team up. The Wall Street Journal reports their production companies are in talks to create a show modeled on the hit Netflix series Quarterback. It would follow the lives of pro basketball players. Quarterback, which is produced by Manning's company, followed three NFL quarterbacks last season. Kelly, back to you. All right. Pippa, thanks. Pippa Stevens. Coming up, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon ripping into central banks for their, let's call it, flawed forecasting. We'll tell you exactly what he said and ask former Fed Vice Chair for Supervision Randy Quarles if he's right and if the threat of higher yields could derail the central bank's fight against inflation. That's coming up after this. Dow's up 151 now. And now, CNBC Trend Tracker.
Welcome back. We're just a week away from the Fed's next meeting, but J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon is downplaying the importance of the Fed's next move. Here's what he had to say earlier today at the Future Investment Initiative in Riyadh. I'm cautious. I don't think it makes a piece of difference whether rates go up 25 basis points or more. Like zero, none, nada. I want to point out that central banks 18 months ago were 100% dead wrong. Okay, so maybe there should be humility about uh, financial forecasting. I, I would be quite cautious about what might happen next so. year. Meanwhile, how about the economic data? Flash services PMI improved to a three-month high today. Manufacturers saw the fastest climb in new orders in over a year. The Richmond Fed's business index slumped, but its manufacturing gauge was just the second positive reading since the spring of 2022. So while Diamond says the next move doesn't matter, what should the Fed be doing here with monetary policy, and especially with bank stocks back in the red today? Here to discuss is Randy Quarles, former Fed vice chair for supervision, joining us from the Money 2020 conference in Las Vegas. Welcome to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. I think in the past, if I'm not mistaken, you've erred a little bit on the side of caution, meaning the Fed should keep hiking to make sure inflation doesn't, you know, get worse. But what are you thinking today? Well, at the outset of this whole episode, there were two big uncertainties. There was reason to think that interest rates wouldn't have to rise as high as traditional practice would have said in the past to constrain an inflation like this. And there was reason to think that the length of time between a monetary policy action and an actual result in, in uh, constraining the economy uh, would be shorter. Uh, so you get to a point like today, and the question is, uh, given that there was significant uncertainty about both of those suppositions at the beginning, is it because interest rates haven't gone high enough, or is it because we just haven't waited long enough, uh, and it's going to take longer than we thought at the outset? I, at this point, err on the side of thinking that interest rates are probably high enough, uh, but that it's just going to take longer, probably a lot longer than many had thought at the outset of this uh, tightening cycle. Uh, in order to ultimately bring inflation in and constrain the economy to reduce upward inflationary pressure. What, what do you think is going on with the banks right now? They are trading very poorly. Well, there's concern in an environment where interest rates are going to be higher for longer that their liquidity needs uh, could be much more significant than they have been for a long time. Uh, and how do you respond to those liquidity needs? The Fed and the other bank regulators are gearing up to uh, require the banks to address that through more capital and more internal liquidity, holding more liquid assets inside of each bank. Myself, I think that's the wrong response, uh, and that the only way that you can address liquidity needs of the sort that we've seen that would be driven by interest rates at this level uh, uh, will be for the Fed to provide additional liquidity, which is really its core mandate, and from which it had stepped back over the course of the last decade. It needs to re-energize that part of its mandate. How does the Fed provide more liquidity while it's doing quantitative tightening? Well, uh, I think that uh, uh, there are certain liquidity tools that will be much more consequential uh, than uh, quantitative tightening, uh, to use that term. Um, uh, so you can push on the gas and the brake pedal at the same time, provided you, you don't push on them equally. 
So when there's a liquidity need in the banking sector, I do think that that's something that the Fed can respond to by lending to the banking sector, while at the same time, for monetary policy purposes, following the, the path that it's on. So you do think banks could end up needing more help here from the Fed. Do you think the Fed can keep reducing its balance sheet to the uh, along the lines at which it's it's been reducing it? Or as we see the reserve uh, reverse repos empty out, do you think they're going to be forced to stop that process? Uh, again, I think that you've got different tools for different purposes. Uh, I think it would be fine for the Fed to stop the process, but that, again, if it has a monetary policy reason for continuing on uh, a particular balance sheet path, that it nonetheless can uh, respond by providing additional liquidity to the banking sector or to the financial system. I'm not sure that the next area of the financial system to come under pressure as a result of this tightening cycle will be the banks. Uh, or at least the, the most dramatic consequence uh, in the future, could be in the non-banks. You, you, it's just any financial institution that has highly mobile liabilities. Those could be deposits, but those, those could be other types of funding for non-banks. And highly interest rate sensitive assets uh, is going to come under pressure in a cycle like this. We saw it with the savings and loan crisis 30, 40 years ago. We're seeing it now. Uh, it's just inevitable, and there are a variety of ways to respond. The Fed just has to be ready to respond. Or I think of private credit uh, as an industry which is now, I think, larger than that of, of high-yield debt and areas like that where we could see some more exposure. So um, the Fed has to be ready here, it sounds like, if there is more stress. Uh, but at the same time, we're in a dynamic because of the Treasury borrowing needs that we haven't really been in before. Uh, which of those is of greater concern to you? In other words, is the Fed at all constrained? Is, is Treasury constrained in the way it could respond to future crises here without putting future upward pressure on interest rates? Uh, so of those uh, two elements, I think myself that the most consequential is the fiscal side uh, as opposed to the Fed's uh, interest rate tool for monetary policy. Uh, I think that the Treasury's borrowing needs are, you know, are very consequential. Again, I think that the system can operate. It can achieve all of these objectives. You can keep financial stability. You can address inflation. Uh, and the Treasury can finance itself. Uh, but there has to be a lot of coordination and thought given to that. It seems more to me than is now, and certainly a heavy understanding in the Congress and in Washington that for the Treasury to continue to borrow at this rate is simply unsustainable. They've got to bring the debt under control. Yeah, a very clear message for you. Before we let you go, and just for some of us, you know, who are who are a little slow in the room, are you talking, when we talk about providing liquidity um, to institutions from the Fed if they needed it, are these programs that have existed in the past or would these be novel programs? Could you just explain specifically what kind of support that would be? Um, well, I, it, certainly programs that have, have existed in the past are designed to provide liquidity to the banking system. Uh, the provision of liquidity to non-banks would be through, uh, so not through the standard Fed programs. There could be some programs that have precedent. There could be some programs that uh, are relatively novel. Uh, but I think the Fed needs to be geared up uh, to be ready to provide that liquidity to the financial system. And that's the right answer as opposed to trying to require every institution to have enough liquidity to meet the sorts of liquidity needs we saw in the spring. There, there's no way that a bank can remain a bank and have and be a $200 billion bank and have $142 billion of liquidity to withstand the sort of a run that, that Silicon Valley Bank was under on March 10th. So 
Uh, so the only answer there is for the Fed to provide that liquidity. And again, I think that's going to apply throughout the financial system, not just to the banks. Fascinating. From the Money 2020 conference, no less. Randy Quarles, thank you for making the time today. We really appreciate your perspective. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Fed former vice chair for supervision. Still ahead, Intel, Broadcom, Micron, they're all among leaders on the SMH ETF today, but it's NVIDIA that's announced an expanded partnership. The details of the chipmaker's latest push into cloud computing next. Welcome back. I mentioned the headlines earlier this hour, but we've got a little more detail now on the suspension of Cruz's autonomous vehicles out in California. Deirdre Bosa has the story. Deirdre? Hey, Kelly. California's DMV has suspended Cruz's driverless taxis here in San Francisco, and that is effective immediately. It gives reasoning for the suspension, which includes the determination that the vehicles are not safe for public operation and also says that the company misrepresented information. Now, this is a huge blow to Cruz, which is owned by General Motors. The San Francisco streets here, they are a hugely important testing ground for driverless vehicles. But Cruz vehicles, they have been involved in a number of incidents over the last Last few months that has really turned public safety agencies like the fire department against this pilot. Cruz is trying to catch up with Waymo 2, the other leading player in the autonomous vehicle race. And this suspension means that Cruz cannot use those robo-taxis without a human driver present. And that's where this real race is to develop the technology. Can't do it for free or paid rides. It is still, however, able to test the technology with a safety driver. That is likely small consolation, however, because like I said, the race is with no safety driver. And we've reached out to Cruz. Kelly, we'll update you when we hear back. Many more thoughts, but we'll save it uh, for when we have a little more time. Deirdre, thank you very much, Deirdre Bosa. Meantime, shares of NVIDIA and ARM are climbing again today. AMD is also up, but was down yesterday after Reuters reported that these three companies are working together on PC chips. While that has yet to be confirmed and both firms declined to comment to CNBC about it, NVIDIA did announce a different partnership today. Let's get to Christina Partsinevelis with those details. Christina. Thank you, Kelly. Well, PC giant Lenovo wants to go all in on AI. And as we've seen with almost every single IT conference this year, that means you have to partner with NVIDIA. Luckily, Lenovo already worked with NVIDIA in high-performance computing. And now today they're announcing that partnership will expand to advance Lenovo's hybrid AI vision. So what that means is customers usually don't want all their data in the cloud, of course, for privacy reasons. So Lenovo is offering this hybrid AI solution, which means you use NVIDIA's AI cloud service, but run on models that are, are actually run on Lenovo systems, powered also by NVIDIA hardware like the GPUs and NVIDIA software. So just think of it as a, a big mix of both the companies together so that you can run your models on the cloud and on location at, let's say, the NASDAQ or whatever company location you are around the world. It sounds super techy, but the takeaway is that NVIDIA's ecosystem is further integrated into other companies' AI platforms. So it's not just about the GPU chips, which are still in backlog until next year, but also about NVIDIA's various software and cloud programs. I want to point out, though, that NVIDIA shares are actually lower this morning. So you can see on the interday chart just earlier this morning, because the company said that export controls are already in place versus the 30 days from October 17th that it was initially supposed to start. So that timing has been moved up, but the reaction is pretty much already priced into the stock when the news hit last Tuesday. We can say it's baked in, which is why it rebounded uh, after this morning, Kelly. 
Uh, incredible uh, developments the last couple of days. Christina, thank you. And closing bell overtime, we'll have a lot more on this story with the CEO of Qualcomm and a first on CNBC interview at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Don't miss it. Coming up, Microsoft has missed on earnings only once in the past 20 quarters. Alphabet is the, quote, most well-owned Internet stock heading into earnings season, according to Wells Fargo. And 4X headwinds have Goldman paying close attention to Visa's full-year guidance. We'll get you the action, the story, and the trades on all three of those names next. Welcome back. The busiest week of earnings season ramps up with two big tech names after the bell. We're talking Microsoft and Google and Visa in today's earnings exchange. Portfolio Wealth Advisors Lee Munson is our trader today. Lee, welcome. It's good to see you again. Appreciate it. Let's start with Microsoft. Shares are up 37% this year, thanks in part to its big push into AI. Goldman also highlighting Azure's growth and any early indications of co-pilot adoption as key numbers to watch. They also finally closed that acquisition of Activision, uh, so that will be something analysts are keeping an ear out for. Lee, what do you do with the stock here? You know, here's the thing. They've got to come in with at least 55 billion. They've got to beat what the estimates are. They've got to come in hot. I tell you, let's get the hype versus reality. Goldman's right. It's all about Azure. It's all about that 70 plus percent margin on the majority of their revenues and profits. I love co-pilot. I'd love to have, you know, subject verb agreement on my Word documents. Um, I'm not really, I care about the whole hype about AI is going to start writing video games. All of this is about, are they going to grow cloud and are they going to keep that 70 plus percent margins? Everything else is just noise. Yeah, I tend to agree. That kind of sets us up for Alphabet as well. Having a hot 2023 up more than 55 percent this year. RBC is warning of some weakness in ad, uh, ad weakness in search, though, and also says YouTube ads have gotten a boost as people go searching for content during the Hollywood strikes uh, on the impact, uh, margin impact of job cuts also on their radar. What about this namely? You know, I love YouTube. I, I I know those margins are fat. You know, the problem is it's 10, 11% of the revenues. If YouTube was like 25, 30%, I'd be all over this. But you have to believe with Google. And by the way, for full disclosure, I own a little bit. I've owned it for a while. This is all about ad growth. And remember, the ads on Google are core ads. It's not like, you know, Meta or Snapchat where, you know, you, you get a lot of volatility in spend. So I think that you have a decent ad environment going forward. And I'm not convinced convinced that ChatGPT is going to eat all of core ads. The real thing, if you want this stock to keep going higher, you've got to have cloud become more profitable. It's a third-rate cloud platform. Mm. We need to see it make money. Interesting. So I hear the same emphasis for Microsoft and Google, really all about the cloud for both of them. That brings us to Visa, totally different. Shares are up 12% year to date. Good barometer, obviously, for what's going on with the economy and the consumer. Mizuho says full year consensus revenue expectations are too lofty, especially as inflation moderates. That'll be a nominal hit. The firm also notes ongoing disruption in profitable businesses like travel that could be at risk. And of course, the dollar here, a big story. Cross-border spending was a help in the recent past, but what now? What would you do with this stock, Lee? You know, I would just stay away from it. Uh, here's the problem. Is it who's right? I think everything is too rosy. This is all going to be about the macro. Visa can't escape the macro. It's a great company. All it does is print money. People think it can do no wrong. But its growth rate at 10 or 11%, like even if it keeps that, we've got to get the personal consumption expenditures to continue to inflate. And if we have any little slowdown or any type of little recession next year, people are going to look at Visa and say, why are we paying such a high multiple? I would rather, this is like one of those classics, like a Starbucks or like Nike a month ago, buy it if they have bad 
bad guidance, buy it when it's down, but why pay a premium for it, especially going into next year? All right, parting thought on the markets? I love the market right now. I would like to see the 10-year trade above 5% longer than five minutes. And I think we could see the low come in. If we saw pricing of a hard landing, like a 4,000 on the S&P, I'm backing up the truck and getting crazy. But, but here, do you back it up or do you wait? Um, I bought, I would buy here. I'll tell you why. I bought at similar levels earlier in October, but if I hadn't, about 4,200 to 4,250 is a great place to commit more capital. But put half of, of your extra inventory that you want to buy, I think we can go lower. So yeah, around here is, I think, is a great part if, if you have a little extra cash and, and need to get some, some money moving. All right, 4,232 is our level at the moment. Lee, thank you. We always appreciate it. Thank you. Lee Munson. That does it for The Exchange. For more analysis on markets and the economy, you can sign up for my newsletter in one easy step at cnbc.com slash newsletters or scan that QR code. Coming up on Power Lunch, we're looking at another name reporting after the bell, Snap. Shares fell nearly 24% in the third quarter, but will get the lone or rare bullish case. Dom is getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this break. See you on Snap. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.